The Mountain Vista Baptist Church podcast features the preaching and teaching of Pastor Robert Perry and the guest speakers of Mountain Vista Baptist. The purpose of this podcast is to help believers grow, to edify the saints, and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. This evening and go to Daniel chapter number two. We're returning there, of course, from our studies last week. Uh, we've endeavored to go through uh, ver- chapter 1, and we did that in two messages. Now we'll endeavor to finish up chapter number 2 in, the, in two messages as well. And uh, just for the sake of, of, uh, of remembrance and uh, recapping things, let's make sure that we're all on the same page of what has taken place, and also for the sake of time, because there's a lot to cover still between 24 and 49 of chapter number 2. Uh, so we're not going to read these verses to, to jump off the page here and to get things kicked off here this evening, we will uh, read them as we go along in the message. But so that as a way of recap, to remember what we've learned so far already, uh, we said that the book of Daniel can be be divided into segments of what? Twos, all right? So I want you to speak out loud to me and uh, and respond to me tonight, and uh, we'll move right along uh, uh, hurriedly if we're able to do that, of course. Uh, But it's divided into twos. There's four segments of twos that it can be divided up in. The first segment being the fact that it is written in two what? It's written in two different languages, those languages uh, being, of course, Aramaic and Hebrew. Uh, Aramaic spanning this chapter, chapter number two through chapter number seven, and Hebrew being the chapters one and chapters eight through 12. Of course, because we know that it is written in two languages, we understand that it is also um, written to two audiences and uh, based off of those two languages. The first audience uh, being that of Hebrew uh, or the Jewish people, uh, as he's written in Hebrew. They would have been the only one to uh, be able to read and understand these writings of Daniel. Uh, for the Babylonian people uh, or the Medes and the Persians or whatever the case might be, as we'll even go on tonight further, uh, they didn't take the time to learn. Hebrew. Uh, Although the Hebrew slaves that had been brought into captivity had been forced to learn the Babylonian language, and so therefore uh, the first audience, the Hebrew language, uh, referencing those uh, Jewish people. The second language being Aramaic, being the language of the Babylonians, and uh, of course the Babylonians and the Hebrew slaves were able to understand these writings as they were forced to to read uh, and to learn this language. Of course, we said thirdly that the book has two messages. Now, the messages is first that Daniel explains God's future plan for Israel in delivering the promised kingdom, but only after a period of judgment. And the second message is that Daniel demonstrates how God's people are to live in faith even now while they await the kingdom. So we have two languages we have two uh, recipients or two, uh, two people that it's written to. Uh, we have two messages, and there are two themes as well. The themes of God's sovereignty and the theme of His grace. And so, I'm hoping that when everything's said and done and we're done with the book of Daniel, at the very least, you're able to give an overview of what the book covers. And, uh, and you might not be able to remember everything about the prophecies and the symbolisms of different things, but I do hope that if anything sticks out to you when somebody says, hey, what do you know about the book of Daniel? Well, it's written in twos. Uh, there's two languages. There's two audiences. There's, uh, there's two messages. There's two themes. And hopefully you'll be able to give at least some type of an understanding of each of those as well. 
Now, we also said that as we got into this portion of, of Daniel, chapter number 2 through chapter number 7, it's written in a, a literature structure. We would use an outline to bring out the points of the message. We would use an outline to highlight what matters most. Uh, but the, the writings of the Eastern culture, especially in those days, wouldn't use an outline like we would know it. They would use what we call a chiasm. And I believe I have that uh, slide up there also, Brother Larry, if you'll move up to the next one to kind of help us to illustrate this. And each section has its own point, uh, but as it moves along, it, 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 if you may, dives down deep into the ditch and then makes, it way back up, makes its way back up. And the, the entrance into the valley, uh, it, it, it mirrors and corresponds with the exit. And then the midway point mirrors uh, that of, the, uh, of going into the valley and coming out. And then, of course, down at the bottom of the valley, they mirror each other as well. You see that on the screen. Uh, the first A uh, point being the prophecy concerning the four Gentile empires that dominate Israel and the world. That's what we're, where we're going to end up tonight with finishing chapter number two. Chapter number three, Daniel deli deliver, I'm sorry, God delivers Daniel's friends from Gentile persecution. C, God's hu God humbles the Gentile king, Nebuchadnezzar to demonstrate his sovereignty in chapter 4. Then C prime, again backing its way out, God deposes of the Gentile king Belshazzar uh, to demonstrate his sovereignty in chapter 5. B prime, God delivers Daniel from Gentile persecution uh, in Daniel chapter number 6. And then A prime, the prophecy concerning four Gentile empires that dominate Israel and the world in Daniel chapter number 7. And so you see that A and A prime are similar in their dealings or their points what they're trying to accomplish, B and B prime similar as well, and C and C prime similar as well. So we say that the book of Daniel is written in twos. The book of Daniel is written in two languages to two audiences with two messages with two themes. It is written chapters two through seven in a literature structure called a chiasm, all right? And so that's where we are jumping into here this evening. Now tonight, we'll continue our study uh, through the first part of this chiasm, and we've already learned that God sometimes allows seemingly impossible situations into our life in order to show His might and His power and His greatness. We spoke about that last week. We, that was the first point when we saw the greatness of God or, and, and saw all that He was going to do. And recapping, of course, uh, the revelation of God's power was brought before us. And then, of course, point number two we discovered last week was our response, and our response ought to be in prayer. And so as we see that God will use these seemingly impossible situations in our lives to demonstrate His greatness, His power, His sovereignty, and we found that we ought not respond in the same manner as the unbeliever would respond. Here's what had taken place, just as a recap before we jump into the, main, the meat of the message tonight. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar has had dreams. Chapter number two, the first, it be, opens up with that. And uh, we said it could be a recurring dream. It could have been a dream that kind of was unveiled in segments night by night. But a period of time had went by where he, would ha where he was having these dreams. He calls all of his wise men together, the astrologers and the Chaldeans and the magicians and the sorcerers. And he brings them before him and he says, now listen, um, uh, I have this dream that I've had and I can't really remember all of the details about it. So what I need you to do is give me the, the dream. Tell me what it was. And then once you've told me the dream, tell me the interpretation of the dream. 
Well, all of his wise men said there's no way that anybody could ever do that. Uh, only gods would be able to, uh, to be able to tell you what the dream is. But if you'll just tell us the dream, then no doubt we can tell you what it means. Well, Nebuchadnezzar's uh, response is, oh, no, that's not going to work. You're going to have to tell me, uh, tell me the dream, and then also tell me, uh, not only tell me the dream, but also tell me the meaning of the dream. And uh, they, they, again, they, they press harder. They say there's no way. There's not anyone, and not even, there is no great king ever that would have ever asked any of his servants, any of his wise men to ever try to do such a task. And uh, there's no way we can do this, but if you will just tell us what your dream was, then we will interpret it for you. His answer was, you have one option and one option only. You're going to tell me the dream and the interpretation of it, or you're going to lose your lives and I'm going to destroy your homes and, and just completely rain catastrophe upon your lives and families. Well, they, of course, were not happy about that because uh, they were going to be seen as frauds because they had no power. They had no ability. And wisely, he said, the reason why, part of the reason why I need you to tell me the dream before you give me the interpretation is so that I know that you're actually telling me the truth. Because if not, I think that you're just buying time to try to make your escape plan so that you can get out of Dodge before uh, everything you know, goes crazy around here. And so he says, tell me what it means or, or you're going to lose your life. Well, they said, we can't do that. So he instructs his, his, uh, one of his officials uh, to make plans to gather all of the magicians and all the wise people uh, together and to kill them all. That's where Daniel comes on the scene. Daniel's just finishing up his training. He's just finishing up school, the, the, the University of Babylon, if you may. And uh, he's, his commencement service has just wrapped up. And here comes Arioch, the man that's in charge of rounding all these, these magicians and astrologers and wise men together so that they can be put to death. And uh, Daniel's gathering. He says, hey, follow me. Daniel's like, what's going on? Well, you're about to be put to death. Whoa, wait, on, wait, wait a minute. What do you mean I'm about to be put to death? What's going on? I just finished my train. I haven't even served a day on the job. And so Arioch tells Daniel what has happened and what is taking place, and, and, uh, and, so Dan, and of course, uh, uh, Daniel says, well, hold on, hold your horses, tell the king, that, or take me to the king, and, and I'll tell him that I can, I can get an interpretation. So Daniel stands before the king, and, and, uh, and he tells the king, listen, I will get you an interpretation of this dream, just give me some time. He says, and we find as we jump in tonight, we're going to jump in at verse number uh, 24 in just a moment, uh, but we find, well, last week we started with the revelation of God's power, right? Remember that? But we're going to see tonight as we get into verse number 24, the demonstration of God's power. It's not just spoken of that God can do it. That's what Daniel said. Daniel went to the king and he said, king, let me tell you something. My God is powerful enough to bring this this message or this dream to my mind and give me the interpretation. But now we're going to see God's power put to the test or demonstrated, not just merely spoken about, but actually uh, accomplished. Verse number 21, uh, Daniel, he has already prayed and he asked the Lord to, to give him the, the dream and the vision and he begins to just praise the Lord. He extols the Lord uh, as he reveals the dream's interpretations. Uh, God, God, he says, changes times and he changes seasons. Look at verse number 21. 
and he changeth the times and the seasons. He reproveth, I'm sorry, removeth kings and setteth up kings. He giveth wisdom unto the wise and knowledge to them that know understanding. And so we find here as Daniel speaks of times and seasons, he's referring to something that is very specific and the very topic of the dream. He is, uh, he is speaking of the words times and he's referring to using the word times as referring to the course of history. So beginning and end, time is, is history. Then when he speaks of seasons, he's speaking about specific periods, specific uh, events or ages in, the, in, in that time, in that, in that uh, history, and uh, he's specifically speaking of a, of, a, of a span of time, a span of history. So when he says time, he's talking about from the beginning to the end. But when he says seasons, he's talking about individual segments of it. Are you following along with me? And so think of it like this. I, we would say in our lifetime, we would start at birth, and maybe we'll say the Lord gives us till the age of 80. Well, we could talk about a season of our life being that of adolescence, uh, grade school, and, and, and our, in our toddler years. We could talk about a season of our life being our teenage years, from about 13 to 18, 19 years of age. You could then speak of a season of our life of being uh, from our 20s into our, our 40s or whatever. You see where I'm going with that? That's what Daniel's trying to get across here, and that's what the, the, this is what the dream is speaking of. It's speaking about history. In a, as a whole, but more specifically than that, it is speaking about a season or a time frame in that. This isn't just an Old Testament concept either, as we spoke about last week, and we understand that this is also a, uh, a, a, a New Testament uh, uh, dealings, and the word in the New Testament is the word ages. I think I have a, a slide for that, Brother Larry, and uh, we don't find that word ages specifically in the verses on the screen. We do find it in Ephesians chapter 2, verse number 7, Ephesians 3, verse number 5, Ephesians 3, 21, Colossians 1, 26, uh, but we do find what is being spoken of as referring to ages here in this verse as well, Mark 10, verses 29 through 30. And Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, there is no man that hath left house, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands for my sake and the gospels, but he shall receive an hundredfold now in this time. This is a season, a period of the history. And he says, uh, in this time, houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, uh, and in the what? World to come, eternal life. So that's another season or another age, if you may. And we find that Jesus speaks about a time and a world to come. Give me the next slide there, Brother Larry, and we'll kind of break it down like this, and we'll give you some more visuals in just a moment. And so we could say that we are living in this time, this age, and there will be a world to come, another age to come. It's clear that, that we exist in one age or a season today, Yet God has another period of history, another age planned after this one. And this pattern of one age leading to another age leading to another age is, is God's work in history. And we understand just as he works to put kings and, and people in place when they were put in the place, you were born when God planned for you to be born. Your death will come when God plans for you to be, be your time on this earth to be done. And the ages are established in the same way. He is the, 
He is the author and the completer of history and the ages. Furthermore, the Lord generally gives us some insight or uh, an explanation or a little heads up, if you may, some notice when the changing of ages is about to happen. This is what is being spoken of. This is what this dream means. The reason why uh, the Nebuchadnezzar is receiving this dream, and it is God's, it's God's two-minute warning, if you may, that, hey, uh, the change is about to take place. There's an age is beginning or an age is coming. And we find this in the New Testament as well. Give me the next slide there, Brother Larry. And we find this, that a, the, the word, the last days. Last days, a final period of the current age, which ushers in the next age. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse number 1. This know also. That in the last days perilous times shall come. Second Peter chapter 3 and verse number 3. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lust. And I'd submit to you tonight that I would have to believe we're probably in the last days. That the next age is, is going to come. And, and I believe after we, after we speak about the events that we're going to learn from the, the, the dream of Nebuchadnezzar and God giving Daniel the interpretation, it's just going to solidify that fact even more in our hearts and our lives as well. But my friend, in the New Testament, that transi transition from one age to the other is, is characterized as the last days, and the last days are the final period of one age before it ushers in the next. Can I say tonight, as we consider the demonstration of God's power, notice verses 24 through 30 with me, as we understand that only the God of heaven knows all things. Look at verse number 24. Therefore, Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had ordained to destroy the wise men of Babylon, he went and said thus unto them, Destroy not the wise men of Babylon. Uh, bring me in before the king, and I will show unto the king the interpretation. Then Arioch uh, brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus unto him, I have found a man of the captives of Judah that will make known unto the king the interpretation. The king answered uh, and said to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, uh, art thou able to make known unto me the dream which I have seen and the interpretation thereof? And notice Daniel's answer. Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king hath demanded cannot the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, the soothsayers, show unto the king. But there is a God in heaven that revealeth secrets and maketh known to the king, uh, to the king Nebuchadnezzar, what shall be in the latter days. Thy dream and the visions of thy head upon thy bed are these. As for thee, O king, thy thoughts came into thy mind upon thy bed, that uh, what should come to pass hereafter, and he that revealeth secrets maketh known to thee what shall come to pass. But as for me, this secret is not revealed to me for any wisdom that I may have more than any living, but for their sakes that shall make known the interpretation to the king, and that thou mightest know the thoughts of thy heart. The next morning... Daniel, he's already spoken and said, I'll be able to get an answer, just give me some time. He's gone to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and said, hey, let's go to the Lord in prayer tonight. They spend that night in prayer. The next morning they arise. Daniel hurriedly goes to Arioch and says, all right, bring me to the king. I've got some instructions to bring to him. When Arioch hears Daniel's story, the guard immediately runs to the king and tries to do some self-service for himself. He says, hey, king, I found somebody that has the interpretation for you. 
okay, if you want to claim victory over that, go ahead. But we find the contrast in Arioch taking credit for himself and finding this man and Daniel saying, I can't do this on my own. There's a lesson in there for us right, as believers right there that we ought not be hasty to take credit for the things in our life. We ought to always bring the glory back to God. But meanwhile, Daniel is constantly and consistently directing, redirecting credit away from himself and back to the God of heaven. When the king asked Daniel, he, sa- he says there, are you able to give me the, my dream and the interpretation of it? In essence, Daniel's answer is immediately, no, I cannot. Now, the king must be dumbfounded by this answer. I can just see it taking place, right? The king's just been told, Arioch says, I found a man that can bring the, 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 your dream and the interpretation of it. He's patting himself on the back. I'm going to get a promotion for this one. He goes and gets Daniel, brings him in. I can just see Arioch standing there with the, the, next to Daniel. The king looks at Daniel and says, can you give me my dream and the interpretation? And Daniel says, no. The king probably looks dumbfounded. Arioch probably about to lose his mind. You just lied to me. I'm going to get myself killed now. Uh, but Daniel doesn't stop there. He says, I cannot, but there is a God in heaven that can. I believe it's important that he specifically locates God in heaven as opposed to the gods of the Babylonians who were found only in the temples. And the fact that the wise men before had told uh, the king that the only person that could ever do any such of these things that he was asking were gods themselves. And Daniel says, no, it's not the gods that did this, but it is the God of heaven that has done this as well. And of course, Daniel's accurate revelation is his proof that the God of Israel is true and that he is alive. As Daniel prepares to give the king his answer, he introduces his answer by describing it as a prophecy that is concerning the last days. Now, give me that next slide there, Brother Larry, and we find, go back to what we were speaking about, ages and, and uh, last days, and we find here specifically, he says, that it is of the latter days that is being spoken of. And so this time, and the last, in the last days, perilous times will come. That's the transition time. This is Daniel's wording for it, the latter days that we've just read there. And this is the process or the evidence. This is the workings. This is what is going to take place during these latter days to usher in the transition into the next age. The term latter days simply means this. It simply means future days of the end. But that just begs the question, the end of what? The future days of the end, well, as you can probably guess, latter days is referring to the last days, the future days of what? Of an age, of a season, of of that time period. And in fact, this dream is a description of an entire age from its beginning, the conception of it, all the way to its ending, the last days. And Daniel says this prophecy is about the future. But he refers to the latter days because this is the main point of the dream. Can I say it like this? If you are excited about, a, 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 maybe let's say it's the Super Bowl, all right? And uh, you skip church on Super Bowl Sunday just so you can watch the Super Bowl. 
Shame on you. But you skip church on Super Bowl Sunday, just watch Super Bowl. And after, the, the, after church is over, I come over to your house to catch uh, what's going on on the game. But the game's already over because of our time difference and everything. And you already know what's happened. I've kept my phone off. I don't know what's going on. And I come in and you're celebrating. And I say, what happened? And you say, let me tell you about this play that happened at the three-minute mark in the second quarter. And you start telling me, describing the whole play, how everything went down, and you finish how the touchdown was caught, and, and everybody cheered, and the, 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 the points were scored. And then after you described it, you just stopped and didn't tell me anything else about the game. Okay, that's nice. I'm glad you're excited about that one play. But what happened at the end? What's the outcome? Who won? Because after all, that's what matters really in the, in the end anyway, is who won, what's the ending like, what's the outcome. So Daniel is focusing on the la- latter days, the, the last days of the end, because that's truly what matters the most. He's speaking about a whole entire game, if you wanted to call it that, a whole a entire age or season But he's going to focus mainly on the ending of that because that's what is the most important and that is what we all want to know about anyways. The events that make up history, my friend, they are not random. God has orchestrated them. And we're going to find that Daniel is telling the king about a dream and he's given an interpretation about a dream that is the beginning of an age, but most importantly, it ushers in the ending of that age to bring in a brand new age. And I think you could probably gather where we're going with that. But nevertheless, all ages work together to bring God's glory and accomplish all that he has promised to his people. So then Daniel begins to explain to the king that none of the other men could do any of this. Uh, he descri- and so he, but God has allowed him the opportunity to describe the king to the king his dream. So I said this, only the God of heaven knows all things. But we read in verses 31 through 45, only the God of heaven can do all things. Remember, we're not just hearing about a revelation of the power of God anymore. We're seeing God's power displayed. We're putting it to the, we're actually experiencing it being taken care of. And so God reveals the content of the dreams through Daniel picking up in verse number 31. Thou, O king, sawest and behold a great image, this great image whose brightness was excellent stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. This image, uh, uh, this image's head, Verse number 32 says, was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part of iron and part of clay. Thou sawest till the stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay and break them to pieces. Then was the iron and the clay, the brass, the silver, uh, and the gold broken to pieces together and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away, that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And we find here that the king's dream is one of the most intriguing visions that is ever described in the word of God. The dream was of of a strange and a majestic statue, if you may. And the materials of this statue, they varied from head to toe. The progress went from greatest value 
to a lesser value. Give me that next slide there, Brother Larry. And uh, here's a mock-up, if you may, of it. And, uh, and we find that the head of gold, and, and of course, as it makes it all the way down to clay, but it's decreasing in majesty and increasing in its brittleness as it makes its way down. Daniel describes the divisions of this statue from head to toe, and the des then describes what came next. A stone. He says that was uncut by human hands, descended or fell from above like an asteroid, struck the statue at its feet, and though it struck at its feet, nevertheless, every part of that statue crumbled and was destroyed. Nothing was left of the statue. The stone, however, though, remained, and it grew into a giant mountain that filled the entire earth. So there's the dream. Now you get to interpret it. Well, that's the problem. There's enough information there that you could start trying to put pieces of the puzzle together. But it's also vague enough that you could almost come up with any interpretation you wanted and make it mean whatever you wanted, it as well, wanted to as well. It could mean almost anything. But it does have a specific meaning. It has an assigned meaning from God himself. And if we don't seek to find God's meaning and God's purpose in this, we will be lost like a, a goose in a hailstorm. We'll be just running around like a chicken with our head cut off, wondering which direction to go and, and what way is right and what it really means. And ultimately, though, we find that it, because of how vague it was uh, and, and how weird almost it really was, it forced Nebuchadnezzar to seek out Daniel. And where was Daniel going to get his answer from? The God of heaven. And therefore, the real interpretation was able to be known. And so we find that God reveals the content of the dreams through Daniel. And God provides the interpretation of the dreams through Daniel as well in verses 23 through 45. For the sake of time, we won't read all of the verses, but we will highlight some as we go along. But we find here, look at verse number 20, uh, uh, look at verse number, uh, verse number 36. Let's do this. Verse number 36, this is the dream, and we will tell the interpretation therefore uh, thereof before the king. Thou, O king, art a king of kings, for the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power, and strength, and glory. And whatsoever the children of men, wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beast of the field and the fowls of heaven hath he given unto thine hand and hath made thee ruler over them all. Thou art this head of gold. So give me the next uh, slide there, Brother Larry, if you would. So we, uh, we understand the Bible is clear. Daniel clearly states that the beginning of this age begins with Nebuchadnezzar. It begins with Babylon. Because he says, you, O king, and your country, your nation, uh, your rule is the head of gold. And we find, and so we have Babylon represented as the head of gold there. He says this also about uh, King Nebuchadnezzar. That God has specifically given him all power in the world. He says wherever men dwell, wherever beasts were, were roaming, Nebuchadnezzar ruled. Now, we know that Nebuchadnezzar did not go to every end of the earth and, and, and conquer, if you may, the Americas, for instance. He didn't conquer every bit of land, but it is to say this, that God had given him so much power and authority that had he come... To the Americas, he would have owned this land also. 
if he would have walked out into a, 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 a safari land somewhere that was filled with wild beasts and animals, not one lion or tiger or bear oh my could have touched the hair on his head because God had given him authority and power over it. This is how strong, how powerful he truly was. And we find that describing the authority that was given by God is only confirmed uh, by Jeremiah himself. Jeremiah the prophet said in Jeremiah 27 verses 5 through 7, he said, I have made the earth, the man and the beast that are upon the ground by my great power and by my outstretched arm and have given it unto whom it seemed meet unto me. And now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and the beast of the field have I given, unto, uh, given him also to serve him. And all nations shall serve him and his son and his son's sons until the very time of, this land come, of his land come. And then many nations and great kings shall serve themselves of him. Jeremiah just confirms the fact that God has given this power, this great strength uh, to, to Babylon, to King Nebuchadnezzar. And the choice of gold for Babylon represents the style of his government, the style of his kingdom. Gold would have been the most precious of metals, the most valuable of metals, the most majestic and, and most powerful of metals of that day. And in Babylonian society, the king was all-powerful. Now, you might think when you think of a, a monarchy and, and a king's rule that all monarchies were that way. But as we'll read even later on, this was simply not the case. But when it came to Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar and the kings of Babylon, they had all authority. What they said went. What, what they wanted to have accomplished was accomplished. And whatever they said was what the, the, the I mean, it was, it was Bible, if you may, in their days. And so if he said today... I only want everyone to wear red. Everyone had to wear red. But if he changed his mind tomorrow and said everybody has to wear white, they all had to wear white. And he said, on this day, everybody that's left-handed, you have to wear red and white. And everybody who's right-handed, you have to wear blue and green. That's what they had to do. I'm just saying that's all the power he had. He was completely and utterly powerful. But notice also in Jeremiah 27.7 that we find it says it was only temporary. Verse number seven says, and all nations shall serve him and his sons, his son and his son's son until the very time of his land come. And then many nations and great kings shall serve themselves of him. See, the next part of the statue confirms this conclusion. The next part of the statue, as it, as it progresses downward, uh, it helps us to understand that, yes, the head of gold speaks of Babylon. It speaks of Nebuchadnezzar. But Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar something comes after him. In fact, another kingdom will arise to replace his kingdom. And though Nebuchadnezzar's fall to another kingdom, and, and Babylon falls to another kingdom, nevertheless, this new world power, though, is somewhat lesser in majesty, somewhat lesser in its strength than Babylon was. And so we find that this, this statue, it, be, it, it shows the beginning of an age. It ultimately brings the ending of an age, but it gives us the process of it. It's a timeline, if you may. You look at a timeline, you think of looking at it from left to right normally, but this one has been inverted, and we find this is a timeline going from, to, from the top to the bottom. Give me that next slide, Brother Larry, if you would. And we find that it shows us here that this timeline progresses downward trend to describe what is going to take place. And so we see the head of gold is Babylon, 
And then the silver and the bronze represent subsequent kingdoms uh, in the statue. And, uh, and is there a map next, Brother Larry? Give me that map. And uh, we find kind of a rough, rough representation of the, the reach of Babylon, all right? All that yellow part would have been their kingdom, their authority. All the way down here to Sinai would have been Egypt. Of course, they had already conquered Judah and all of that. The map from the first week, we remember they only kind of had Babylon and they had made their way up north to Haran and all of that. But now look at all that they are conquering. All At the time of Nebuchadnezzar and the peak of their power and their might, they have a pretty good landmass that they're able to take care of. Now, with this being known that this is a timeline or a structure of, of how this age progresses on, what, what, do we, what should we call this age? Should we just say this is Daniel's interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream age? We could. We could call it that. But interestingly, interestingly enough, Jesus himself names this age for us. Look at Luke chapter 21. In verse number 24, Luke 21, verse number 24, it says, And they shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles. Notice the next words, until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Chapter number 21, Jesus is in the midst, in the midst of explaining how Jerusalem will ultimately be destroyed by the Romans, and he's explaining the coming fall of the city in AD 70, and Jesus is saying that these events are actually part of a greater, grander plan from God himself. Specifically, the people of Israel are to be scattered outside of their lands, and the city of Jerusalem is to remain under the control of a Gentile oppressor. Until when? He says, until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Interestingly enough, that word times is, Greek, is, is uh, translated from a Greek word that if you were to translate that word, it also could be translated into the, the words of, of uh, seasons or, you guessed it, ages. So when he says the times of the Gentiles... He's speaking of an age. He's speaking of a season. He's speaking of a period of time. And Jesus says that this time frame that Daniel is unveiling to King Nebuchadnezzar that begins with Nebuchadnezzar and the kingdom of Babylon is an age or a season or a time that we can refer to as the time of the Gentiles. What does this mean? It means that the Gentiles will ultimately be in control of, of Jerusalem they will ultimately be in control of, uh, of, of making sure that they, whoever it is, is the world power and they, they control pretty much everything that goes on. The, the Jews are, are scattered. They're not in their homeland. They're not even in control of all of their homeland either. And notice that he says it'll be until the time is fulfilled. That word fulfilled could be understood as completed. So he's saying that this will be the case. This time frame, this season, this age will take place until it is completed, until a new age is ushered in, until the last days have been accomplished. And so the Romans' uh, sacking of Jerusalem was just another moment on the timeline of Gentile domination in Israel. And this domination will continue until it reaches its appointed end, until it reaches its completion. And from the statue in Daniel chapter number 2, we see where the age begins 
The head of gold, which is Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar, was the first time in history that Gentile authority scattered the Jews of Jerusalem and captured the city. That's why Nebuchadnezzar is represented by the head of this or the beginning of it. He starts the timeline. He is the beginning of the age or the time of the Gentiles. So the statue represents a timeline of the time of the Gentiles. Are we all on the same page with this? What does the statue represent? It represents a timeline going from, from the beginning going to the ending, the timeline we will refer to as the time or the age of the Gentiles. Like all ages, this age has a beginning and it has an end. So one day Gentiles will no longer dominate Israel uh, once this age is over. And from studying the rest of the dream, studying the rest of the statue, understanding the timeline that is being given, we can find out how it comes to a conclusion. This timeline or this age comes to an end. So moving to the second and third kingdoms, Daniel says that the silver or the second kingdom will be inferior to Babylon. The inferiority of the second kingdom is represented by the lesser value of silver as compared to gold. But I wonder, how is it going to be that the kingdom that overthrows the most powerful kingdom in the world is any less powerful than that kingdom? Well, Scripture tells us it will be, and to understand this question, we must determine which kingdom replaces Babylon in history, since Daniel doesn't name it right here. So we determine the criteria. We've got to figure out what, how someone, how a kingdom is able to line up as being able to meet this, this timeline or this age. Well, the criteria to be one of the kingdoms of this statue is derived from its definition itself. This is a kingdom of the Gentiles. This is a kingdom, uh, the, the time of the Gentiles. And each king, kingdom, therefore, must be a Gentile kingdom, right? We follow along with that? Because Babylon starts the, the time of the, of the Gentiles, the age of the Gentiles. And since they were a Gentile kingdom, then whoever is the success, successor of them, they must be a Gentile kingdom as well. Furthermore, each kingdom must be the most powerful kingdom on the earth, having replaced the prior kingdom in that position. Therefore, each kingdom must possess both Babylon and Jerusalem. Because it was at the taking of Jerusalem and the scattering of, of the Jews that this age or the time of the Gentiles began. And it began when the kingdom, the Gentile kingdom of Babylon, was in control of, this, of, the, of the city of Babylon and in control of the city of Jerusalem at the same time. So anyone who replaces them must be Gentile in, in, in their kingdom. They must be all-powerful in, in the world, pretty much, meaning that they have possession of Babylon and Jerusalem at the same time, and because Babylon possessed each of these cities originally. Now, looking back in history, my friend, you under, we understand that there's only three kingdoms that meet this criteria. So with that being said, we can easily and quickly put in what this dream is talking about. The first kingdom after Babylon being that of the Medes, uh, the kingdom of the Medo-Persian Empire, which replaced Babylon in 550 B.C. We read of this transition actually later on in the book of Daniel because it actually took place while Daniel was still alive and living in Babylon. But the kingdom was formed by the alliance of the Medes and the Persians, and we find this represented in the fact of what's two things on the torso there? Two arms. Babylon 
most powerful, gold. Babylon, one nation, one head. But this next kingdom that took over Babylon was an alliance between the Medes and the Persians, two entities coming together as one, represented by the two arms that are found on this torso here as well. It grew in power until it challenged and defeated Babylon under Cyrus the Great. And the kingdom was less majestic than Babylon because the king of the Medo-Persian Empire was not all-powerful like the king of Babylon. We're going to find this actually take place later on, actually next chapter, chapter number three. Or with the chapter, also, I'm sorry, where uh, the uh, Daniel and the lions then. But the king of Babylon, if he said something today, he could reverse it tomorrow. He could reverse it five minutes from the time he said it. But the, the ruling of the Medes and the Persians said that a king could not replace a previous edict or rule that a prior king had put into place. Therefore, the king, the one that was in charge at the time, was not all-powerful like the king of Babylon was. Are you following along with me? So therefore, we see the decreasing majesty as represented in decreasing of the metals from gold to silver as well. Now, although it wasn't as powerful in that same way as Babylon, its power continued to grow. Give me that next map there, Brother Larry, if you would. Notice how much wider and greater even the Medo-Persian Empire was than that of Babylon. They took over and they just continued to expand their territory. And, and, and uh, meanwhile, we find that the age or this time of the Gentiles is simply doing what? Going on. It's just moving on from one segment of that age or period to the next. And the kingdom will be replaced by a second and this one will likewise be less majestic in its rule as well. Give me the next slide. We understand that after Babylon, we had the Medo-Persian Empire. And then looking back, the only one that would fit the criteria next would be the Hellenistic Empire uh, of uh, uh, being led by Alexander the Great. Alexander extended the Greek Empire out of Central Europe and into, e into the East. He defeated the Persians in 330 BC, and uh, he is represented by the bronze because the leader of the Greek Empire was far, far less powerful than those of either the Medes and the Persians or even the Babylonians. But notice their reach continues to grow even still. Notice this map as well. And it's, it's, it's reached even further. It's got all the land uh, of, of, the, uh, of, the, of Babylon, all the land of the Medes and the Persians, and all the way out west, also going out to Greece and such. And, uh, and we find that Alexander the Great, he was a much, a much less powerful leader in the fact that his word just carried a bunch of weight. He was powerful in the fact that he had a great army. That if they, he said, you have to do this, and, nobody, and the person, somebody didn't want to follow, he was able to then sick his army on them to enforce his law and enforce his rule. But he didn't have the power with his words of that even the, the Babylonian king or the king of the Medes and the Persians. Also, the statue divides during this period. Uh, can you go back to the Hellenistic one? Uh, where, uh, where's this Hellenistic empire there, Brother Larry? Notice as it comes down, it begins to divide into what? It begins to divide into legs. We understand that Alexander the Great died barely only, uh, only four years into his reign. And his kingdom was divided into fours, two in the east, two in the west. And we understand that that kind of gives us the, 
definition of east and west, and we speak of that even today, don't we? We don't really talk about the northern hemisphere, the southern hemisphere, not near as much as we talk about the eastern culture or the western culture. And God is already predicting, he's already prophesying the fact that we're going to move into an east and west division of things in his his word as well. But as a result of all this, as a result of of Alexander the Great dying and his kingdom being uh, his kingdom being divided in the fours, two in the east, two in the west, it allowed for the next empire to come along. Give me the next map after that. That should be the Roman Empire. Notice how much greater it is even. But even still, it is less in its power as far as authority is concerned because here's what the Roman Empire did. The Roman Empire moved into lands and regions, but instead of taking it, and saying, you have to completely assimilate into our culture and do as we do, we know that the Roman Empire allowed those people to continue to hold their identity. Think of what we read in the Gospels. Who is in control of Jerusalem and the area of Israel in the Gospels? Rome is. But did the children of Israel, the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, did they have freedom to be able to worship and have their own structure of living? For the most part, yes, they did. Although they were still under the rule of the Roman Empire, they were still free to go and do as they pleased, especially when it came to religious structures. So whereas Babylon comes in and says, wipes everything out and takes people back to their homeland, the best of the best, Rome came in and said, we just want a lot of stuff. We just want to be in control of and in possession. And we'll even make it to where we put some people as governors and kings, i.e. King Herod, right? He was just put into into place there just to be like the manager of that area. They didn't make them completely uh, change their culture. They allowed them to stay, for the most part, the same people as they were, but they were still under the authority of the Roman government. And therefore, we find that in that they were still less powerful in, in their authority than even that of Babylon as well. Now, the question is, is we've come down to an end. What about today? Well, do you realize that the Roman Empire was, in, was still intact and to some extent all the way until the 1800s? It wasn't until the 1800s that they dissolved. But we find that as you go down this, this statue, let's pick up in verse number, uh, uh, pick up in verse number 40. And the fourth kingdom, this is where we're at right now in our, in our timeline, the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, for as much as iron breaketh in pieces and subdueth all things. That's how Rome conquered. They conquered with an iron fist. They came in, and, and if, you didn't, if you didn't come alongside and, and willingly give up, they would make a mockery of you. That's where crucifixion came into place in the first place anyway. But nevertheless, we find that it goes on and says this. As iron that breaketh all these, shall it break in pieces and bruise. And whereas thou sawest the feet and toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, but there shall be in it of the strength of the iron, for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay. And as the toes of the feet were a part of the iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. And my friend, that is exactly how the Roman Empire and every, every world power since has come along. We understand that the, 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 the transition from iron to clay, and uh, as it speaks of the toes and being kind of put together, a mixture of clay and iron, it's still speaking of all the same kingdom. 
And at, if, you looked, if you were to look at a map of the Roman Empire and kind of showed all the things, it would look as if an iron rod was dropped on a plate and a glass and you tried to glue it all back together. The visions of this, per, this land and this area. We think, uh, well, think of uh, Europe. And think of all the transitions there and, and how it was part of this, this ruling party and this ruling party and, and, and it's kind of trans, transitioned and shifted over time. <clears throat> but we find that we can't name this the Roman Empire specifically. So a more general name needs to be given to it. And I would propose the name of, give me the next slide, Brother Larry, the Imperialistic Democratic Alliances. My friend... The Bible tells us that there will be a time where world powers begin to come together. And, and actually, Scripture says what? Brother Wilhelm, you mentioned to me last week, when you hear peace, peace, look up for your redemption draw of nigh. We understand that this part of this age has not come to an end because we know how it ends. Read with me as we go along. Daniel writes in verses 44 and 45 an interesting end of this age. And in the days of these, of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms. And it shall stand forever. For as much as thou sawest that stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold, uh, the great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter. And the dream is certain in the interpretation thereof. And so we find here that the statue, it represents a, a frame of time, a, a, a time frame, a period of time, an age of time. The time of the Gentiles is what we're calling it. That's what Jesus called it. When this new kingdom comes, though, what's it do? It puts an end to this age. The Bible tells us, give me the next slide there, Brother Larry, that this stone falls from heaven and hits the, the feet but it, it totally consumes all the rest of the, of the statue. It totally, completely destroys all of it. And we find that it tell, the Bible tells us that when it does this, a new kingdom is set up. We just read that. That's nothing new because we've already understood and read that God is the one who establishes kingdoms. He's the one who brings these kings onto, uh, into play in the first place. But there's something different about this. Because we find here it says that the kingdom shall be, uh, not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall, what, what shall? This kingdom, this new kingdom, shall stand forever. He says that uh, it will be ruled by God himself at the beginning of verse number 44. The God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. He's not talking about coming along and God putting someone else into play anymore. He is talking about God himself coming and ruling as king of kings and lord of lords. So we understand this to mean that the ending of this age, the ending of this time of the Gentile only comes to an end when Jesus Christ himself has come to rule as king of kings and the lord of lords. When's that going to take place? At his second coming and the beginning of his millennial reign here on this earth. Now, in order for that to take place, my friend, we understand that the age of the Gentiles has to come to an end. 
Now, the age of the Gentiles has ended, and what caused this age of the Gentiles to take place was the scattering of the Jews from Jerusalem, Jerusalem being under, uh, 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 under captivity of another, of a Gentile nation and such. And so with the coming of this new kingdom, or this millennial reign, will establish the regathering of all the Jews into their homeland in Jerusalem again. They will be in complete control of their place. Right now, even today, we think of 1948, right, when the nation of Israel was established as a nation again, uh, and what great strides that has taken to seeing end times come to place. But even still today, they don't even possess their Temple Mount, the Dome of the Rock, the Muslim, uh, uh, whatever you want to call it, uh, is, is on the top of, of that Temple Mount. That's where it's erected right now. But one day, this time of the Gentiles, this age of the Gentiles will be completed and Jesus himself will set up his temple right there on that temple mount and all this will be fulfilled. We find that Daniel confirms this assumption for us in verse number 44 when he says that the new kingdom will end all other kingdoms on earth. Notice the, also though that he says that this kingdom is set up by God himself. We find that it says that this one that sets it up is a rock that is, falls from heaven and that it's, may, it's, it's, not, it's cut, not cut out from by any man's hands. Well, what does that have any meaning? Why is that so important? Because Daniel t- speaks of it in his telling of the dream and he speaks of it again also in his interpretation of the dream as well. Well, again, we use scripture to interpret scripture. And Deuteronomy chapter number 27 and verse number 6 says this, Thou shalt build the altar of the Lord, thy God, of whole stones, and thou shalt offer burnt offerings thereon unto the Lord thy God. With that phrase, the whole stones, meaning not stones that have been chiseled out, stones not cut out by hands. And when the children of Israel were instructed to create an altar to worship their Lord and to bring sacrifices for their atonement, what were they told to do? Go get, build it out of stones that you didn't construct yourself. What is that speaking of? That redemption comes from God alone. It's not a work of our own hands. And what is going to be the accomplishing of the new kingdom? The work of God himself. It's not going to be of our own. God's going to establish it. Notice that the stone fell on the feet of the statue, indicating that the coming of Christ comes at the end of this age. And we understand that to be true according to the scripture as well, uh, the rest of scripture as well. Daniel's interpretation reveals a long history of world empires that, bridge, uh, that, that, that bridges history from Judah's first uh, depression until their final regathering under Christ. Now, obviously, we've already seen three of the four kingdoms rise and fall. Babylon, Medo-Persian, and what was the other one? Well, it was the Hellenistic Empire underneath Alexander the Great. We are currently in that last part of this age, or the latter days, the last times. We are currently in that age. But how close are we? Well, we get a better sense of that question when we get to chapter 7 and chapter number 11. So you're going to have to hold on for that, all right? But we still derive, and considering the fact that Daniel gave us this progression of kingdoms before any of these transitions ever took place, it gives us complete, 100% absolute assurance of the accuracy that what he said has, is going to take place 
will ultimately take place and that we can trust the rest of the prophecy. Having seen three-fourths of it already fulfilled and completely fulfilled, we have assurance, 100% assurance, that the rest is going to take place as well. I want to close with this. I know I've gone long tonight, but number two, let me say we ought to have a dependency on God's provision. The ending of the chapter ends with Daniel having given the interpretation, giving the, the dream, giving the interpretation, and we find that through it all, God protected Daniel and his people. Verses 46 and 47, then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and worshiped Daniel and commanded that they should offer an oblation and sweet odors unto him. And the king answered unto Daniel and said, Of a truth it is that your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of secrets, seeing thou couldst reveal this secret. Instead of hearing, take him to the chopping block, he's hearing, let's throw him a parade. Let's, do, let's make him a great person. Let's do some great things for him. And we find God's protection through it all. Did that mean that Daniel wasn't faced with a, a threatening time? Oh no, he was faced with it. I mean, he was literally being taken to the execution block. That's when he said, Arioch, hold on. What's, why are we being so hasty here? Take me to the king. Let me tell him. I can give him an, an interpretation and tell him what his dream is. He was facing what seemingly was the end of his life. But God protected him. All I'm saying tonight is we trust the Lord regardless. If God would have said, Daniel, this is your time to, to, to come be with me. He would have lost his life. And Daniel would have been better off for it, right? But it wasn't Daniel's time. And so even though it seemed like he was facing his last day, God protected him even still. Notice God's provision in verses 48 and 49. Then the king made Daniel a great man and gave him many great gifts and made him rule over the whole province of Babylon and chief of the governors over all the wise men of Babylon. Verse number 49, then Daniel requested of the king, and he set Meshach, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the provinces of Babylon, but Daniel sat in the gate of the king. Notice, my friend, he, he was promoted for this. Don't you think that probably made some enemies? We read about this here soon. And wisely, and, being, and having the provision of God on his life, he said, hey, king, if there's anything I can ask you, hey, I've just saved your life and you're giving me all these things, but I didn't ask for any of this. Could I make one request? And his request was, can you give me some help in my authoritative role? And who was his help? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Three men that he knew he could trust. Three men that he had already stood strong with when he said, we will not defile ourselves with the portion of the king's meat. And all along, God's protecting and God is providing. And we find that chapter number two gives us a complete look into the fact that Daniel was able to predict the future for him in the fact that Babylon would be the, the, the royal power, the most powerful nation on earth. They would be overthrown by the Medo-Persian Empire. Then that, that Medo-Persian Empire would be overthrown by the Hellenistic Empire. The Hellenistic Empire would be overthrown by the Roman Empire, leading us to this imperialistic alliance that we're talking about right now and that we are currently in. But three, well, all of them were future to him. But for us, having Scripture, the divine revelation of God, we look back and see that three of them have already been fulfilled and completed. We're living in the latter days. We're living in the last times. Now, I don't know 
how many more years this latter days or last times will be. As I said, Daniel gives us even more in-depth look into these things as we move along in the chapters, and it can give us more insight to say, you know what, we're probably closer than we are further away. But I'm here to tell you tonight that the book of Daniel has predicted three major empires and their reign and their rule, and he's predicting what's taking place right now. I'm just saying if he was able to get it right in three out of four already, and we're living in the fourth, I'm pretty sure we can trust what is taking place. We can trust the rest of the word. That's why I said from the get-go that the book of Daniel is one of the greatest books of prophecy. And unless we get a good grasp of Daniel, we're going to struggle at getting grasp of others as well. My prayer is that it wasn't too fast that you didn't get it. My prayer is that you understand what we're coming from here. And, the, and if, I were to, if someone were to ask you, wait, what's the, what's the statue of Daniel in Daniel chapter 2 represent? Well, the gold head represents what? Babylon. The, the chest area there, silver, represents Medo-Persia. The waist there it represents the Hellenistic Empire led by Alexander the Great. And then the legs down into the feet and into the toes is representing the the it, world empires in which we're, because after all, leg is two, and then the foot is two, but then it branches off in the toes, and that's tens, right? So look at all the world powers of the day. That's what is referencing there, and, and we find that we're living in those days right now. Our Father, we thank you so much for this evening, and uh, I, I've, I've rambled on long enough tonight, Lord, and, and, uh, and I'm afraid that I've skipped over some, some important details as well in trying to, and endeavoring to, to accomplish uh, the finishing of tonight, but Lord, I ask now that you would just bless and, and that you'd help us to, to, uh, to just apply these truths that we've learned, uh, the applications we've spoken about, our trust in you, the, the demonstration of your power and, and the, our dependency upon it. Uh, Lord, I ask now that you would just help us to, uh, to realize you're, you protect us and you provide for us, but as it concerns the things of the future, help us to see that the things that have already been accomplished gives us the assurance that what you say is going to happen will take place. And Lord, we want to honor and glorify you through it all. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you